looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeastern by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell. And I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Truth, 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 I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. I'm one crazy new Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. This is the legendary Hustle Rip Rogers saying hello to everybody. And I want to encourage you to watch, learn, listen, anything you can. When you hear Crazy Train Radio, just open up those fucking ears and shut your goddamn mouth. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. 
boy do we have a good one for you today. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Courtesy of Dr. Mike Leno doing some bribing. I'm just kidding. But I am going to let him do some introductions here of this next guest. Mike, floor is yours. Well, this is one of the people I respect uh, and I have for decades and decades and decades. One of the, if not the sharpest mind, and that's wrestler, accomplished wrestler, uh, trainer, brain whiz, world traveler. This was a guy I was so appreciative in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, I can't even remember, when he was working for Autobahns in Austria, Germany, etc., in Europe, uh, was kind enough to, I can't even remember if it was email or letters, but letting me know what was going on there with TV, who else was there. You know, this was a period when I think maybe after Rip's tour, maybe during it, uh, when I think Terry Funk had to replace uh, Van Vader, Leon White, for a match with uh, Owen. So, uh, one of the few Owen Hart, Terry Funk matches I can think of occurred there, but this man has seen it all. Uh, of course, uh, you know, indelibly in the Midwest, the Pafo uh, promotion, you know, grew up with Lanny and Randy and Angelo and he's done everything and he continues to do it and amaze everybody. The one and only hustler, Rip Rogers. Rip, thanks for coming aboard and uh, sorry we had some technical shit going on. Well, the problem ain't you, Mike. The problem's me. I ain't, I'm goddamn anti. Am I allowed to cuss on this motherfucker or not? Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not Mr. Goddamn Technology. They can stick all that stuff and stick it up their motherfucking ass. Technology's ruined this goddamn world. Everybody's addicted to their fucking phone. You can't fucking walk around, take a shit, give yourself a wank, whatever about your fucking face in a goddamn phone. Fuck everybody. <laughs> now uh i know we can say some of those words it's like when lawler was on with a hindi coffin on the letterman show uh, which uh, is also indelibly on my brain but i want to get into some positive stuff because you you've done so many things um well let's get into it like I, i'm sure like most of us you did it the right way. You probably grew up watching wrestling even before you might have asked somebody to train you. But tell us about your childhood. Like, when did you start wrestling? Was it a family relative or friends that turned you on to, to wrestling? And, and who were you watching? Were you watching, uh, were you in Ohio or like Indiana, like with the Bruisers oh, TV? I lived in Indiana. So, okay. And this, is before, this is before cable TV. And I lived between Indianapolis and Louisville. So I could actually get Nick the Bruiser wrestling on Channel 4. Then I could get the goddamn Nick Goulas wrestling uh, on out of Louisville. Or I could adjust the uh, antenna Cincinnati and get the Sheik's wrestling out of Cincinnati with the rabbit ears. And you know how the antenna would spin around and everything. And then late night on Saturday night, I could get Phil Golden All-Star wrestling out of Paducah, Kentucky. So I could get four fucking wrestling different programs. Each uh, one was different, and you'd learn about fucking working just by uh, uh, watching the different TV programs. Now, who was it out of Paducah? Who was the promoter there and the, the group's name? I don't recall it, that one. Even. It was uh, it, it was uh, Angel. Well, it was Angelo's. Oh, oh, oh okay. But not, not the not the ICW because you'd already no, started. This running. was before. This yeah. was before like 
73. Who was working in that territory then? I just knew uh, Angelo was. Lanny was just starting. Then they had a bunch of guys out of uh, Illinois and uh, Western Kentucky and, wow. and stuff like that. Well, well, so I mean, I traveled to most all the territories, not all of them, but no, the Ohio, that would have been, we're talking Johnny Powers with uh, Ox Baker and Valentine and Waldo Von Erich and, uh, and well, then, well, yeah, that's talking about, that's if you're working with the goddamn sheik or if you're working with, uh, uh, different, different places over there. Cause I went up and worked for the old sheik when I was first starting. I was working for Bruiser. I was working for Sheik. I was working for Nick Goulas. I was working with Geigel. I was working for Vince Sadier. I was doing uh, Oak Hill, West Virginia TV. And it's anybody I could meet in between time. Uh, Sam Muspick at, uh, uh, at the Chase there. Uh, Didn't you? You yeah, came uh, in later. You came in later. I want to go back to your training. But you, you came in later, I'm pretty sure, with... Randy and, and Lanny for uh, Larry Matisic when Munchnik had retired, and then it was a battle of Pat O'Connor who had purchased the Munchnik office, and Larry Matisic started from scratch, but he was at the uh, the better venue, the bigger one, and had more name guys, you know, Brody uh, challenging Flair for the strap, and, you know, he had some major league cards, so it was almost like the Sheik Bruiser Detroit War of 71 through 73, 74, the Montreal War, the Vachons versus Rougeaus, and Atlanta. Yeah. If you remember uh, uh, Annie Gunkel, Ray's widow, taking on the whole end of yeah, the brain fucking right. trip. Wow. Yeah. Wait, so so how did you start watching wrestling? Did, a, did friends say, hey, you got to turn on this stuff? And about what year? Or was it like a father or grandpa or somebody that turned you on? No, I remember my grandpa took me and wrestled at the high school. It was Bruiser, wrestled Cowboy Bob Ellis. I was seven years old. This is 1961. And I went and saw that shit, and I thought that was the coolest motherfucker I'd ever seen before. And then I remember Bruiser trashed the goddamn locker rooms, and they was all of a sudden they had a ban of no wrestling, pro wrestling in the high school ever again. Because of bruiser of trash in the fucking dressing rooms. But then when I grew up, they started waving the rule once a year. And I'd come home from off the road and I'd run a show at the fucking high school. So I did a thousand, uh, over a thousand people, three, four shows in a row when I'd come home for Christmas break or whatever. But uh, uh, that was that. What year, approximately, like, that was in the 60s when Bruiser was a heel with Cowboy? Yeah. Yeah, I was seven years old, 1961. So you, you went to that show in 1961? Wow. Yeah. Uh -huh. well, my grandpa you, know, you know, the cool thing, and I'll shut up and I'll pitch to Jonathan, is Bob Ellis apparently is still alive, but he's been ducking... The IRS was this the rumor, and that's you know allegations, allegations. But he was to have been honored at Cauliflower Alley, uh, which is after many years. I you know saw you. I was happy, thrilled to see you in 2019. But he was supposed to be our top honoree, and then he 
we were told he got nervous, you know, because he was on the move. This was the shit that we heard about Cowboy Bob Ellis, who was a total legend. You know, he had Japan tours. He was a WWA world champion in Los Angeles and Japan for Jules Strongbow, genius, my, you know, my booker and my yeah. territory. Let's start to Jonathan before I get long-winded. Oh, that's okay. And like I said, we're going to come up with t-shirts for that. I'll shut up now. Hashtag. But I know it was a different time and place there, Rip. And thank you for joining us. I had to step away for a second there. But, uh, and we'll get into you helping coach and train some of the next generations. But when you got started, it was a totally different beast, per se. So who actually got you started? But also, when did it finally click for you? Because guys would definitely be rough with trainees trying to break in. Well, it was, it was real different. I bullshit my way in the wrestling business and I wasn't even smart. So mm -hmm. I got my Carlton Hildegard trunks. I got me some boots made from Bill Ash's dad. And so I looked apart and this guy named Steve Cooper. I knew from Indianapolis when I was in college, this guy had a ring. He wasn't even smart. His name was Master Stevens at a VFW club in Indianapolis. So I met a bunch of guys who eventually worked for Bruiser and stuff. And hell, I knew, I said, I knew I wasn't smart. None of these guys were either. Hell, they was working the goddamn right side and we just copying shit we saw all fucking television. So no, there was nobody even there that was even smart to the goddamn wrestling business. But there were about eight of us that ended up getting working for Bruiser and having matches, et cetera. So you just only, everything was kayfabe then. I remember when I was in uh, college writing to Vern Gagne, and he was going to uh, accept me into his school. Wow. And, and uh, had to fucking whatever, blah, blah, blah. But in the meantime, I had gotten in and bullshit my way in. So... If I'd have went with Vern Gagne, if I'd have had enough balls to stick it out, like Buddy Rose did, and Buddy quit the first time so hard, uh, they'd have probably beat the shit out of me. I don't know if I had enough balls to stick around. In the meantime, I already got in the uh, wrestling business, and uh, I've had my first goddamn matches at Oak Hill, West Virginia. The guy telling the promoter, Warren Sherbeck, told me to, uh, go over, I'm thinking, like, go over what, right? <laughs> uh, he's, he's telling me, he says, when you get the pencil, go home. So I'm going, when I get the fucking pencil, go home. So I'm trying to act like the fuck, know what the fuck's going on. I see fucking uh, Billy Coleman, he used to do TV for goddamn Vince Sr., and he took me to Allentown, the old Philadelphia arena, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Couple weeks after that, he's over there making the goddamn blade in the fucking corner. Scared me to fucking shit, right? Holy, I said, what the fuck did I get into, right? So uh, that was pretty fucking exciting. I'm not even fucking smart having the goddamn match. Cole was telling me to grab a fucking arm. I'm saying, fuck you, you motherfucker, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was like a, a satire movie on fucking wrestling of what you shouldn't be doing. So if I can uh, start out like that, not go to a wrestling school or anything like that, I guess anybody else could too. So, so what the fuck? 
Well, I'd be curious to know with that kind of start, when did things start clicking for you uh, mentally to go, ah, this is what we need to do? Not that you fully learned the business. <laughs> from uh, my God, I was the worst. I tell everybody I was the worst in the history of wrestling. I was a big fan, but I was from a small town. Nobody was smart to the business. Nobody knew anything about the wrestling business. My dad worked the post office. He wasn't a goddamn uh, Randy Savage's daddy or something like that, where he could be at at home around the business and stuff like that and grow up with it. Uh, hell, I was just a goddamn fucking uh, fucking Mark. So what the fuck, right? I, and you know, I was I was a, a football coach. I remember wrestling. Uh, George Animal Steel. I remember it was Allentown, Philadelphia, wherever the fuck it was at. I remember Larry Zabisco was there and Tony Gurria was there. And uh, I remember I worked in George Animal Steel. I ate the fucking turnbuckle and he had the fucking green tongue or whatever the fuck it was. But he was a football coach at the time and I was a football coach at the time. And the guy I come up with, Seymour, he was a football coach at the time. So we was just talking about football. So hell, I wouldn't be smart with the wrestling business anyway. Mike, it you... took me, it took me, I ended up uh, going to, with the Popos. I had uh, worked for Nick Goulas and I was Lanny's Chris, or partner on a Christmas show or something like that in Nashville. And then uh, I was working for Bruiser and Paul Christie told me that, uh, is going to open up the Maritimes with uh, uh, Emil Dupre. So he got me Randy's number, and I called Randy up. So I went to the goddamn Maritimes. So I was with them, and then Randy booked me in for Nick Goulas, and then uh, Landy booked me out for Don Owens. When I was at Don Owens, I worked for Don out there. And you just talked about San Francisco earlier because Don had his tape in San Francisco, that's where Shires got in trouble for spitting on the floor or, or whatever the fuck it was. That was Channel 2 so News. Was, yeah, Rip, that was my second home base. My first one was LaBelle, okay. Los Angeles. Okay. And Roy at the, our most powerful independent station, Channel 2, KTVU, when I finally moved up there. Because uh -huh. even before I was able to drive, the magazines were transiting me up to from L.A. to San Francisco to shoot Roy Shire's big cards, and then his ring announcer, who also made the program, Alan Bolte, started listing me in December of 73 as the official photographer for Roy's program. So those are my two home bases. But Roy, in 19, late 1969, early 1970, was kicked out of Channel 2, where he had his wrestling show for a good 10 years, our strongest non-network affiliate, meaning not a NBC, CBS, but, you know, the whatever it is, VHF or UHF. It was the strongest, most prestigious uh -huh. one. And uh, because he wouldn't stop spitting t cigar juice on the marble floors in Channel 2, you know, which is a swanky building yeah. in downtown Oakland. So he gets kicked out. He's The only thing he can scramble for for TV is Sacramento, which is a, another 90-plus minute drive from San Francisco proper. A lot of the boys said they wouldn't go up there. His lead announcer, Walt Harris, who lived in... Los Gatos, a really, you know, billion dollar community. He was the head news guy. Uh, and he also called for the Giants for Channel 2. And he, Roy was so lucky to have had him from 1960, 
late 1960 to 1970 when this incident happened. And Walt said, I ain't driving up there. So Roy also had to get, you know, an announcer that wasn't as good and Hank Renner. So everything was fucked. A lot of the, the wrestlers said, like Pepper Gomez said, no, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to go work for uh, uh, Ganya now and, or in Bruiser. And he took off. Pepper Gomez lived like three blocks from me where I used to live in Alameda, Northern California. So I'll shut up about that. But that was the story of Roy. So he's at this low power Sacramento shit TV station, Channel 40. And that was kind of a long, slow death for Roy. But, you know, he still had some good years there, but it was kind of a hassle for him that he couldn't rein in his... uh, So have you heard that story, how he buried hundreds of thousands of dollars after his wife, Dorothy, discovered he was having an affair with his Miss Wrestling, you know, this on-air series of models. He uh, had affairs with several of them. And Dorothy found out, or he he thought she'd found out. So he buries a couple hundred thousand, you know, from his shows, dollar bills in his friggin' backyard, then goes to dig them up months later. They'd started deteriorating. He flew himself to Washington, D.C., to the Treasury, and a lot of that they said they couldn't recover. You know, he was hoping they would just exchange all these deteriorating bills. Did you hear that story? Uh, it is freaking insane. No. All because he thought his wife was going to take all his money and leave him because he was screwing his uh, Miss Wrestling. So these would be these girl, bimbo-looking girls. One of them was Adrian Barbeau, who later became that actress in Maude and Swamp Thing and all these great films Jonathan knows. So he would have these hot looking women stand next to the signboard of like, who would be wrestling who, you know, the job guy against Ray Stevens, job guy against Pat Patterson, job guy against Rocky Johnson and Peter Mavia tag team. Anyway, so let me throw back to you, finish what you're going to say, and then I'll, I'll ask some more shit. <laughs> I'm about done for two stories, two good, good ones that we just started. Holy shit. Okay, it's like, I remember, I remember when I was out for Don Owen, I remember Piper was going to book me in to LA for LaBelle side unseat as top fucking heel. And then, but then Randy told me to fucking come home at the time, uh, because they would run start running full time ICW then. So I left, uh, Portland and Vancouver and that's when, uh, and then later on, I remember uh, Red Bastine put a tape on Channel 20 there. So I remember Randy at Orton used to do promos. Uh, I think it was Channel 20 in San Francisco. Does that sound right? Yep, yep, yep. yep. That's uh, Coffee, TV 20. Yep, that was a huge, that was a decent channel. That was where Roy had, uh, Roy eventually got his TV on there, but that was the last couple of years when he was having to bring in uh, Oregon, Portland, Don Owen TV, and they do localize yeah. the Cow Palace. So he totally then, I forget if he did the same thing, if he got kicked out of lowly Channel 40 out of Sacramento, which is a hick town compared to San, San Francisco. Uh, uh-huh. You know, be like uh, Poughkeepsie, being on Poughkeepsie TV, New York, when you really want to be on New York City TV. So he kind of lost that, and, and then I think was on Channel 20, and he had no studio to film his wrestling uh, by blowing it at, uh, for starters at Channel 2. So he's using first for maybe a year, year and a half, Portland, Don Owen TV, and then Buddy Rose, Piper, Jesse Ventura, Rick Martel, Kurt Hennig would all cut yeah. localized promos for just the Cow Palace, maybe some of the smaller venues like uh, Oakland Kaiser Center and Sacramento 
municipal odd. And then something happened. Shire Hat was on the outs with Don Owen, and then he started using Geigel's horrific TV out of Kansas City. You know, just uh-huh. it was a far cry from all the insane violence and stuff for the Roy Shire, Pat Patterson, Frankie Kane, Great Mephisto years. And then his last three cards, he had incredible TV out of Florida, Eddie Graham's TV, and he'd have the Funks and Wyndham and Dusty cut these localized Cow Palace uh, things. But so they, that was all on Channel 20, which then Roy had to pay for, whereas before with Channel 2 and then 40 out of sack, he didn't have to pay. You know, he just gave them uh, the avails, the ad revenue. Yeah. But you were smart. So that be, uh, maybe Piper was putting a rib in you because by the time he got to Don Owen or Portland, when he left, uh, I don't know if he was still doing a few shots for Shire, but he completely left L.A. after he got screwed on some paydays by Mike LaBelle, who was infamous. Everybody loved Gene LaBelle, his brother, who did the quote-unquote locker room interviews, which was in front of the door leading to the parking lot. It was nowhere near the locker room in L.A. at the Olympic Odd. And uh, uh, and everybody hated Mike, who would stiff guys on paydays. I mean, Red Bastine was probably the nicest, honest, most ethical guy working for our head booker at the time, Leo Garibaldi. Same thing, ethical, honest, brilliant mind. Uh, and uh, Chavo was the one that drove out Leo Garibaldi. He kept micromanaging when he came in with his dad, Gory, in uh, summer 75 to L.A., you know, he just kept undermining all the shit that Leo Garibaldi was in. Leo was, Garibaldi was the one who came up with the whole Piper gimmick. Roddy did have bagpipes and shit because when he came from Winnipeg via a couple of shots in Kansas City and then he went straight to Houston for Paul Bosch where Bastine found him, sent him to do a few shots for LaBelle and then he was supposed to work for, full-time for Roy Shire at Red Bastine's encouragement. But Leo came up with this thing because when I was there the night Piper debuted, it was at our Battle Royal January 17th, 1976. And he's in like second from the bottom. Nobody had heard of him. He worked a 10 minute draw as just a bland baby face against Tony Rocco, no relation to Argentina Rocca, even though LaBelle, of course, billed it as his nephew. You know, the usual bullshit. You know, so I'm, I'm telling you all this stuff I'm sure you saw everywhere. But by about a week, a week later, uh, Leo had come up with this whole thing and debuted Piper's a heel character wearing kilt, you know, which the fans, the Marks would call a dress, you know, taking forever to take the kilt part off and get down to the tights and then play the bagpipe off key and piss them all off. That was all Leo Garibaldi who finessed that. And, you know, that's where Piper became huge. And L.A. had done that with Jules Strongbow for Billy Graham. Billy Graham came in from Roy Shire, uh, wasn't called Superstar. He was called uh, the Spirit of America, even though he was a heel. And he's wearing leather chaps as a coat and leggings. And uh, that thing wasn't working. So uh, uh, our two genius, they called it the genius tag team of booking. Jules Strongbow and his partner, Charlie Moto, who used to be a heel, Mr. Moto, did a lot of work for Bob and Ricky Dozan booking, but they together uh, somehow came up with the whole superstar Billy Graham thing because he his promos were like, you know, preacher guys. There's a lot of similarity between bullshit, televangelism, and wrestling. Pass the plate, put the bucks in. And uh, 
And then they had him start wearing tie-dye. So then from LA, where Billy Graham, 72, from about February to June, he worked with us, feuded with the babyface John Tolis, then went to Vern, who then sent him to Houston, where I shot two incredible, I mean, these guys carried Billy to actually good matches because he wasn't a good wrestler, sort of like Jimmy Valiant, uh, but super nice guy. Uh, Johnny Valentine and Don Leo Jonathan carried Billy Graham to MoFo near five-star matches, and then boom, he goes up to Vince, and the whole magic happened there. So uh, anyway, you were lucky you didn't come in because every guy who came into L.A., big-name guys, whether it was Ernie Ladd, Billy Graham, Keller Kowalski, they all, all got effed on their paydays. And that's what drove Piper away. So by that point, Piper leaves, and within days, LaBelle replaces him with a Piper knockoff, Eddie Mansfield, who just died. I want to get back to something because I never knew Rebel Bill Ash, who made boots and outfits and was like the premier guy in the 70s and 80s. His dad made your first boot, so he's a second-generation boot guy and gimmicks guy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. So, uh, of course, I got the, at the Carl and Hildegard get, and then I remember going out there when I was on tour for Oli to Johnstown, Ohio. It was nothing but a goddamn garage. I remember <laughs> going in there just to see it. <laughs> Tell us some Ole Anderson stories, because you were there. Were you there before Black Saturday when Vince came in, and then Ole eventually... Right, right after that, I was... Uh, I've been working for Ron Fuller for 11 months. And I did the last 10 weeks wrestling Austin Idol every night for the wow. fucking program. Wow. And Bob, Bob Armstrong uh, said, hey, uh, this is Ole Anderson's number. He wants you to call him. Okay. So I called Ole up, and I never met the man. I'd seen him on TV because we'd watched the Georgia wrestling. Now, this is right after the Black Friday, Saturday, whatever the fuck that thing was. And Ole was getting his own thing. And he said, hey, uh, I don't know you, but Bob Armstrong said you could do the job. Oh, okay. So I said, yeah, I'll come in for you. I'm finishing up here in like two weeks. So I moved to Miss T's in, uh, in Atlanta. And Ole there was fucking, I remember DiBiase was there. and But I worked for Ole. And uh, this, so I went from working with Randy, who was uh, who would cuss every other word, to Bill Watts being my boss, who now I'm going to work for Ole. So me being in a cussing conversation, that was just the norm I thought was wrestling because everybody that I knew. Was, was cussing and everything. So I said, oh, okay, I guess I got to do it too then. So, so so that was that. So then I ended up uh, working for Ole a couple stints, and I ended up running towns for uh, developmental towns for WCW until right. Bischoff got in. And then uh, he wanted to go out, and he'd rather lose a million dollars and make money. I, I, I was out drawing some of the fucking big towns because I'd go out and hustle. And Ronnie West would show me all the tricks to fucking hustling. I would just do that. 
So I did that for uh, a while. Anyway, uh, I you think I got nice, off base. No, no, you got a, You had a real nice push in the Georgia Championship. Um, tell it because I don't even know. You probably told me the story of, of Brenda, but uh, in that period, you had her there with her, or maybe during different different stints. How did you guys meet? And like, did she know how to take bumps? I don't recall. I, I can't recall if she took bumps as a valet, you know. But she was one of the top every, top top. This was before Missy Hyatt and everything, you know. So Brenda oh, was no. a big deal. Brenda, Brenda, Brenda was a Las Vegas showgirl. Wow. And she worked at the, but she'd go on the road and she'd come back and work at a club as a as like the boss in uh, in Lexington. And then Randy brought her out as he as his valet or something like that. But uh, but anyway, no, she was a, a kung fu instructor. Really? Yeah. So uh, and had a gun. You name you name it. You know. <laughs> so so things aren't always as they seem. Put it that way. But uh, yeah. So. Was working, doing whatever, and then when uh, Ole sold the thing to Crockett, then I just went to uh, Tampa and worked for worked for Wahoo. When uh, when remember when Crockett bought bought into it from from Ole? Yeah, because that was the problem with Ole's TV when he came back after Vince immediately appeared with his shitty wrestling on, uh, you know, what was the beloved Georgia championship three or six Oh five Eastern yeah. on Saturdays. And sometimes they'd run Watts and sometimes Dundee's uh, thing with Jarrett on, on the Sundays, if they weren't running best of But then when Ole finally returned after about a year, it was like for us in California, it was like four in the morning, three or four. Yeah. In the morning. And so right. I had to go out and buy a DVR. So I didn't want to miss any of it. And, um, which uh -huh. was, you know, fine, but that was, uh, kind of frustrating because I was the world's biggest Gordon Soli mark. I just thought, man, yeah. this guy's the best. And I, I, that kind of killed it. But I mean, you know, that thing, I, I don't recall all of that, but, but, you know, the thing, so Oli got F'd big time with, uh, uh, the the Briscoes supporting what was the promoter the gay guy promoter um, oh, who my, oh Jim Jim Barnett Jim Barnett who was admittedly yeah. you know gay nobody cared about it and the guy that did the world's best impression you heard this one I know I'm talking more than Rippus uh, Dickie Steinborn one time when Dory Jr was champion he calls him in Japan wakes him up doing his Jim Barnett lisp impression and saying all this crazy shit had Dory going for about 20 minutes before he finally, you know, said, oh, no, this is just Dickie Steinborn. And Dory said, when I get back to the U.S., I'm going to kill you, um, stuff. But Barnett threw his, that's how, you know, we all know, that's how Vince got that slot. I don't know what they, yeah. they sell, they, they fucked over Ole by selling Georgia Championship or the, the time slot, if not the name or, or trademarks or stuff. And then the Briscoe supported it, which I could not understand. Why would you? Uh, uh, well, they got jobs for how long? They got, was still. Yeah, they right, got. Right. They had. They had jobs. They had already saved their goddamn money. 
So what the fuck? The the world was hey, the wrestling business was always a bunch of it was like the mafia. Uh, a bunch of thieves and everybody was a crook or a criminal or whatever and that was the exciting life it was cool they just didn't expect so, it it would be like that would be like bruno selling out and going to work for eddie einhorn in 1975 when he took on vince senior and much next nwa with the iwa where i was yeah. eddie einhorn's hired photographer i was already out there living the summers in long island new york and then, mm -hmm. you know, working for that. And, and Eddie couldn't get Madison Square Garden as his venue. So he was doing his shows initially at a, a Georgia, what was left over from Ann Gunkel's take on the NWA or her attempt to, and she, for two years, she was outdrawn Bill Watts and everybody at that Paul Jones office, the promoter, not the wrestler, Paul Jones. And then yeah. they were filming in the uh, Carolinas, I think South Carolina, where Steinborn got them TV there, and then at the Beacon Theater in New York. But um, anyway, but so I, did, did so what, what? So what did you know about that one? So Oli, so I get that's what happened. So that's how that took that thing came over. Oli, did he sell outright to Crockett, and then that's how they got the slot? Um, and, when. Only had, I think he told me he got about $370,000. Vince paid him or whatever. For that. Uh, and so Ole just talked to Ted Turner and he just opened up another station for him, right? Or another time slot. Yeah, it wasn't as desirable. And then when Crockett, I think it was 86, early 86, maybe spring of 86, then he appeared and got the old 605 Eastern Saturday time slot back and, you know, things ballooned from there. But I actually enjoyed uh, Ole's product, you know, from about 76 on when we first started getting cable. I enjoyed Georgia Championship. You never knew who was going to come in there. It might be Marky Lewin, right. Jack, Jack Mulligan and Abby. And then the next week, Dusty has, uh, he did two surprise, you know, the same thing. I guess they thought the fans were stupid. He did the same surprise box within about a year. The first time he had a guy in the surprise box breaks out of this wood box, it's Maurice Fashon. This is going to be his tag partner at the Omni. And then about a year later, or it might have been, yeah, I think it was Fashon first, and then it was George Steele, of all people, a year later. And you can imagine... Mm -hmm. The, the lack of wrestling skill there, Dusty and George Steele. But uh, <laughs> that's just my opinion only. The whole show is prefaced by allegedly. Uh, but I did enjoy that TV. You never knew what the fuck was going to happen. There was all kinds of excitement. A lot of Harley race, a lot of funks. Very yeah. bad. It didn't get better. But, you know, the NWA Crockett thing was far different and uh, good in its own way. But I like the the only stuff better myself so you were way over there how about the the icw period before we bring back jonathan and let him talk the that was like the guiltiest pleasure on earth they you know all this i don't know why what was the thought process they syndicated to different towns like in la and san francisco they would get icw tv with localized promos where uh, different ICW folks might be Savage, might be Ronnie Garvin would trash, like for San Francisco, they would trash Roy Shire by name, Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson. In LA, they would trash uh -huh. 
but they didn't those guys weren't there then they were trashing legends that had already left got stiffed on paydays many years before they're trashing mike labelle the promoter and fred blassie and john tolis but that's like 1980 and tolis and blassie their heyday was 1969 70 and 71. but it was still funny you know they said oh you guys have seen John Tolis and Fred Blassie, but if you want to see real wrestling, it's the ICW when we come on tour. They never toured there. I don't know if they ever left. Where did they promote outside of the state of Kentucky? Oh, my God. We had 14 TV markets. But they did. I don't know if they were paying or doing trades. How did they get on TV in like cities like San Francisco and L.A. and, and I think Chicago? Well, San Francisco, all we did was send a tape to Red Bastine. Wow. Whatever he did to work his magic, he got it on there. We had TV in Puerto Rico that would pay us. We had right. uh, two TVs in Montana that would pay us. We had a TV in Mobile, Alabama that would pay us to send him a tape. Then we had TV in Oak Hill, West Virginia, Johnson City, Tennessee, Lexington, uh, uh, Louisville, Evansville, uh, four of them in, in Illinois. And uh, so we were in competition with Bruiser, uh, Barnett, Jerry Jarrett. Yeah, definitely the Jarrett's. That was a big deal when Randy and Lanny were allowed to go in there and feud with Lawler and Dundee and guys like that. Because after all the heat they caused, there was major heat when ICW. That was like the ECW of his time. It was so exciting, so different. You know, a lot of guys, folks, maybe not have seen uh, Crusher Broomfield, who'd later become One Man Gang. Izzy Slapowitz, like a Jewish manager. We'd never seen a guy like that with the Devil's Duo. Who were they? Jeff Sword. Who was the other dude? And and Doug, they just went to the ICW wrestling school. It was it was. So. Uh, Jonathan, do you have memories? Have you seen all the, the classic ICW Poffa family Kentucky promotion? I've seen some video of it, but I'm curious to know. And first off, I got to say, while I was muted, Dr. Mike did pop me because he had the oxymoron comment of Slot and Jim Barnett. So. <laughs> oh, you had to mute that. I'm sorry. No, no, I said I was muted as you guys were talking and I popped for that one. So. But I'm curious to know, I've heard, Rip, that you credit the Poffos for, especially because of the way you came into the business, for teaching you pretty much all your basics and then some. So, Oh, pretty much. Uh, me and Randy pretty much lived together about the first four years. So, I, uh, so in every trip, I'm in a car with him and his dad. And uh, sometimes I'm in with uh, Orton, Roop, Malenko. Uh, we had, I remember uh, on two Saturdays, we ran three shows one time, two times. We usually had two shows every Friday, two shows every Saturday, and two shows every Sunday. But I remember on two occasions, we had actually three towns running on a, on a Saturday night. <laughs> so so that was that was real different but that was where i just shut the fuck up listen because randy was so goddamn intense and then we got to start getting into bodybuilding contests and then hell i ended up getting in 12 contests and like 
a year and a half, which is impossible. And I didn't take no steroids and I still won two. So I was like a goddamn freak. <laughs> so, uh, but between the training, wrestling every day, and we're in the fucking car every day, going over finishes and booking and stuff like that. It was just, uh, it wasn't, I learned about, I learned about the business, put it that way. I ended up being bookers in a couple places where guys asked me to do this or business partners, whatever, because I, I was pretty young and I shut the fuck up. If they asked my opinion, I'd give it to them, but I'd cover all the goddamn bases like an old guy. Hmm. I learned from all the old guys and I learned the business with respect of how to win and how to lose. And uh, anybody that was in the business one minute longer than me, I treated them like the veterans that they were. So I'm just sort of like a real different than most of the, most of the kids getting in today. And I learned to call it in the goddamn fucking ring. That's what I fucking taught. I'd have guys with two-hour fucking matches called in the goddamn fucking ring. And everybody experienced all that. And now nobody knows how to call in the goddamn fucking ring. They don't even know Carney. They don't even know Carney. None of the kids today, they don't know that. They're clueless. Vince, as you know, has now gotten away with his farm system from bringing, you know, the talent through or you know pilfering them from the indies like ring of honor all these great talents that they had but no, no carney they're they're getting people from judo world or hockey training them you know their own luxurious facilities that ain't the way to do it and um, you know their nxt thing went off off the rails it's you know not ready for primetime players a lot of those wrestlers what are your thoughts on today's biz because uh, you know, some aspects of it are, are great. It's far more lucrative, but we're seeing a lot of folks. Yeah, they couldn't, no psychology. They couldn't call a match in the ring to save their lives. A lot of them. Well, I don't follow, I haven't seen wrestling on TV since 2002. Unless somebody sends me something on my phone. I don't watch wrestling. I don't have any interest in it. Mystic Man destroyed the wrestling business. Uh, AEW is even worse. But if guys are making money at it, uh, more power to them. Because they can make in a goddamn year what some of us would make in a goddamn career. Uh, it doesn't mean that just because you're a starter today don't mean you're worth a shit. It just means somebody give you a goddamn job. Most of the people in the wrestling business are wrestlers. Not like it's Eddie Graves and Bill Watts and goddamn Oldie. They got they got this TV thing or that TV thing or uh, whatever it is. Uh, guys that was television companies or some kind of mark or like the AEW guy that's got the the worst NFL team and they got the uh, uh, you can't get bad for WWE with just stuff talent and. And they might they might give you a check for ten years and keep you off TV because you were good or better than their fucking stars. So you could get uh, it's uh, the business just changed so much. 
uh, not, I can, nothing that I could see that was, would be any good about it. I'm not into, uh, uh, have to have so many, uh, different ethnic groups or whatever. It's like goddamn playing fucking football line up and the best guys should fucking make it. And that's what it is to me. And I, and I ain't changing my idea and if they don't like it, everybody go fuck themselves. <laughs> but I pretty much got no, I pretty much got no interest in the wrestling business at all because what I teach is, is pro wrestling. I don't teach fucking, uh, sports entertainment. I don't teach none of that fucking shit. I don't believe in having goddamn people five foot one as pro wrestlers, sex changes in there. I don't believe it. If I would ever book anything with a girl against a guy, uh, the guy would kill the girl in 30 seconds and that'd be it. <laughs> and he'd keep, keep hurting her, keep hurting her. Out comes the boyfriend and there's your program right there. But uh-uh, no, I don't, uh-uh, we ain't doing that. When I come in and I book something, uh-uh, it's strictly old fucking school and treated half-assed like it's goddamn fucking real. Let and, me ask, uh, there's two things I'm seeing here when I was trying to find my photos um and we want to have you plug you know because i'm going to probably want to have you back because we're just scratching the surface of course the surface we're talking with hustler rip rogers one of those legendary still a young guy but really very few he and, and lanny know the the territories and the magic i always say i'm a territories guy I miss the territories every day. I was lucky, blessed to have worked for the magazines, got to shoot most all of them. Lots of Japan, Mexico, Canada, but the U.S. territories were really where it's at. And the territory wards, as I mentioned, in Detroit, Montreal, and Atlanta, that was some good shit. Uh, there's a book. It says the book on pro wrestling, Lessons from Rip Rogers. Are you still selling this book? I'm, um, well, it, it looks fairly new. You get it out of Amazon. Wow. I'm going to encourage all, all, you. All it is, uh, a, a, guy, a guy I trained years ago, he said, hey, I just cut all your uh, stuff off Twitter for the last five years, categorize them, put them in a book, and you send me some pictures. I said, yeah, so I didn't spend one cent on it. So I didn't <laughs> get a check each fucking uh, fucking. Uh, they send me fucking money from Amazon each fucking month of just fucking uh uh, from that, but it, it's it's written like it's a so a sixth grader could understand the wrestle business, and uh, all the stuff you think is one way, wrestling is usually the totally opposite of what you think it is. When you're a fucking mark, you don't you don't understand that, and I and I half ass go to explain and stuff how it makes more how it makes sense or it should make sense. It's it, it's real different. Yeah, it's like the first thing a, a mark or regular person when they fall forward is put their hands out to protect themselves, not in wrestling. There's something else. I don't know if you still do it. Was this a, a podcast? It's called Ribs and Wrestling. Were you, were you the oh, host? Oh, I did. Yeah, I was doing that podcast out of Texas. I'm trying to think. Uh, and then I had another. Then I was on. Then I had the. The, the podcast with Pat McAfee wow. and I trained Pat Mac. I trained Pat McAfee to wrestle and he's just, he lives like five minutes from my house and, and he's just phenomenal. And, oh yeah. His uh, uh, debut, that thing with the, uh, he did for NXT. It was out of this world and he's doing great commentary. 
So did you train yeah, for the Adam Cole match? No, I trained him years ago. Wow. And then, uh, well, he's he's as legit as you could get, you know, in the in the ring, uh, all decade fucking punter kicker. You know, he's uh, he does the color commentary on Vince's biggest show on Fox, the Friday SmackDown. Uh -huh. He's the color yeah. commentator. He's as big as it gets. He's on Sirius XM. I mean, Jonathan knows he's huge. Are you, so you're not doing this ribs and wrestling show with the, you did it, I guess. Well, you had guests like Jack uh, Hager, Jack Swagger, who's a legit Olympic yeah. athlete and MMA. Great. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I, I did that. Then I had to quit that because that was paying me a whole lot of money to do his podcast. Wow. And then he had a whole lot of guys on there. And then, uh, I had a contract thing on that. Then I taught him to, uh, was going over and teaching him and taking a bunch of guys with me and, uh, and wrestling three times a week over at his, over at his barn. He had a ring there. So he was getting, uh, taught what the wrestling business was all about. I remember he went in, the, they brought him in, WWE brought him in, and hell, Pat does what he wants. He has shorts on and a, a, a jacket with the sleeves flashed, and they, and Michael Cole told him he needed to change clothes or something. Pat, fuck you. I'm just leaving. I'm leaving. I'm quitting. Fuck you. You called me. I don't need this shit. And all of a sudden, Vince, hey, I think he looks pretty good there, you know. Because <laughs> Pat's rich, you don't give a shit. <laughs> Jonathan, a better throw to you. Uh, well, since you were rapping, Mike, I do want to throw one thing out because I did talk, and you guys talked a little bit about training guys and such, and Rip brings up about training Pat McAfee, which is awesome. I seen some video with that from back in the barstool days. I'll sh send that over to you, Mike. But, uh, yeah, I will. But I'm curious to know, Rip. You did some uh, seminars in my region of Philadelphia for Danny Cage and the Monster Factory. Yes. Yeah. So, Danny. I think they got great organization over there. Danny's pretty first class, and he's not paying me to say that. But when you do seminars like that, even though you, in some aspects, lost interest in the business, what is your game plan going into that since you have students of all different uh, experience levels and whatever. Um, you know who Damian Adams is? Yes. Okay. I worked closely with Damian for years. He come and trained under me. And he trains all these good girls. When I used to go to seminars, whether I go to Santino's, whether I go to uh, the ones in New Jersey, uh, the ones for Danny Cage, the ones in Charlotte, wherever I'd at, I would have guys I would have Damien come out and do an hour Broadway with a girl. Or I'd have uh, Mike Mondo, with, with, if I do a seminar in New York City for him, he would do, uh, I'd bring a girl and he would. they would do a one-hour match called On the Fly. First, I'd have all these guys that thought they was good. They'd go out there and have a three-minute match. I'd say, oh, no, you, there's no prearranged bullshit. Go as long as you can, and you can't throw a clothesline. Go. And that'd be it. And they'd 
shit your pants guys are so fucking rotten and then uh damien would go take different girls around he'd go out there and have an hour hour broadway with anybody and all of a sudden i'd get your goddamn attention i said this is fucking wrestling boys this ain't your fucking prearranged choreographed scripted fuck you this is what it's all about and you can do it with any person and any guy there is, all you got to do is know your basics and all the baby face has to do is shut the fuck up and the heel will lead this goddamn song and dance. He'll tell you what to do. If you can't do it, say, I can't do it. And he'll repeal, do something else that you can do. And at the end, it'll all make fucking sense. But I have, I've done, uh, I have guys do two hour matches. I know I got a, uh, a seminar out on, on the internet thing. If you, uh, like Rip Rogers, OVW seminar, 90 minute, 90 minute match or whatever. I had two of my guys just do a 90 minute match in front of a fucking audience there. And it, it was just normal to put me. A lot of times I go, like I'd be worked for Renee to praise dad, the Maritimes. I go up there. I went up there four summers and I'd usually be his champion. I, I'd take everybody almost, they'd work every day might work four months or four or five months there, but you work seven days a week, sometimes two on Saturday, two on Sunday, but I'd have to fucking go with guys. So I'd have to have a different match with everybody. And I'd make them go almost an hour every fucking night in the main event to give them some goddamn confidence. So what, but you just talked about early, it took a couple of years to get this. Then all of a sudden, once the, once the goddamn light bulb eventually went on, it became like an art in slow motion and other guys are, I never got in the ring my life before a fucking match and did uh, a choreographed thing or whatever. It's all about wrestling, working emotion, the thread of something. It's a synchronized goddamn fight, not a goddamn synchronized uh, fucking ice ice skating thing or whatever like it is. So I, I, I teach it real fucking different. I teach it aggressively. I teach it safety. It's like uh, the guys at, w, at AEW do all this stupid shit. And uh, they got people that aren't wrestlers uh, that are bosses. Got guys that uh, if I'm the boss, I would never ask you to do something unless I knew I could do it or would do it to show you how to do the son of a bitch. You got to respect each other's bodies. I would rather hurt myself than hurt you. And this is get in, get out. Don't get hurt. You don't take dangerous bumps. You take normal bumps and you sell them like they're goddamn dangerous. It's an illusion of a fucking punch. Fucking there ain't no goddamn, what do they call it? Fucking strong style. No, strong style. No. You act like you fucking hit somebody and you sell it as such. You don't hit somebody hard and don't sell it. Now you're a fucking mark. But <laughs> half the boys in the fucking half the half the boys in the fucking uh, dressing room are fucking marks. So what the fuck? So there's guys that fucking know and guys that just shake their fucking head. And I said I'm gonna teach you all this shit. And then you get a goddamn job. Forget it all unless you need it. And you just do as you're fucking told because the boss wants to tell you what to do. Here's your song. Here's your music. Do these fucking moves and just fucking laugh 
have a good time and make your goddamn money and get in, get out, don't get goddamn hurt. Exactly. And part of that answer, too, and excuse me for including this, but from what I've heard from some of the legends before as well is when it comes to calling in a ring and stuff, you can do a show in Cleveland, say, tomorrow night, but then Saturday night you do it in Chicago. you got two different audiences, so you got to feel the crowd as well. Oh, I never repeated a match, ever. I had to see if I'm wrestling you, I know what you do well. I know what you can't do well, and we'll treat it as such. So exactly. some night I got to do fucking lucha. Some guy want they want some some guys are high spot guys. Some guys are emotion guys. Some guys are goddamn fucking brawlers. But I mean, you don't go out there and work with Dusty Rhodes one way and work with Ronnie Garber the next. Something like that. Then go out there and work with Brad Armstrong or work with Mike Graham or whoever it is. Hell, I've never had. I used to be married to the junkyard fucking dog because nobody can have a match with him. I just fucking laugh. Remember, <laughs> I'd work for Bill Watts. When everybody worked with uh, Bill Watts' son, he'd double pay me because he knew exactly what he knew exactly. Uh, I would know exactly what he wanted to do. So I was overqualified for a lot of positions, but I had no ego about it. If it's my job to be a backup second baseman or the the holder on the football team or a goddamn uh, scab referee in the NBA. I just, just put me in, coach. I just want to play. I love the wrestling business. I understand it pretty well. And uh, just have a good time with it. And I, and it was never about the money. That's how stupid I was. <laughs> well, I'd be curious to know, and this is my final question at least, Rip, and thank you again for the time. But Mike had brought up to me as we were trying to get you on the line Apparently, there's a story with you and SiriusXM, so I'd be curious to know what that is. Uh, well, basically, uh, I was on uh, Sirius Station because they didn't have any commercials and stuff like that. And let's just say uh, they started talking about Batman, so I started talking about his sexual preference of what was put in the comic books with uh, the young boy Wonder Robin, etc. <laughs> so, oh, they told me that they wanted they wanted to talk to me. They didn't want to. They wanted my first reaction. They didn't want. They they said, "Boom!" Just blurted out. So, let's just say I called Batman an effeminate name, and they got all upset about it. So I. Uh, <laughs> told him ex, ex, explain with, with Robin the Boy Wonder with the uh, with the, with the mature male living with fucking Batman etc. What they were portraying anyway. So I didn't give it. It was on Dave. It was on Dave LaGreca's show. Yeah, bust that open. I told Rip that uh, that uh, guy that did all the cartoons for Saturday Night Live at least twenty five years ago was spoofing oh, it. Oh my god! The, the ambiguously gay duo. It was Batman and Robin, yeah. Stephen Colbert and the other Steve Carell doing the voices. It, totally gay, riding a Batmobile that looked like a dick. And, uh, or a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, I remember that. The ambiguously gay duo, the ambiguously gay duo.
ambiguously gay duo. Tonight's episode, a hard one. To- <laughs> so Rip was uh, just speaking truth to power, kind of. Uh, I got to go back on YouTube and watch some of those old skits, though. That's great. I, yeah, I just I, the minute he said that, I go, "Oh hell, you're right on about that." <laughs> we better let Rip go. Rip, uh, I want to bring you back because we just scratched the surface. I hadn't even talked about because you said Randy was having using Brenda for a while as his valet. Want to get your thoughts at another time on Liz Hewlett? Was that how she pronounced her name before Randy brought her aboard in ICW and then took her with him? And you know, she became historic in Vince's circus. Yeah, when, when I was. When I was in, in Lexington, I had left and went to work first for Ron Fuller just for a week of TV. Then I went in to work for Bill Watts. And then Liz worked at the jib at Lexington. She took the keys, like your membership card and key or whatever. Yeah. And she was, she worked the desks there. And, uh, he was a little bit heavier, and uh, that's where Randy met her. Well, she, she must have been that's beautiful even then, because I the little bit I saw her doing uh, interviews or something like Barbara Clary for Eddie Graham in Florida a little later. Uh, she uh-huh. was gorgeous. I always love the beautiful women in the biz. Oh, oh boy. Wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> Often least, but. Uh, let's uh, let's let you plug everything before we let you go. What, do, what would you like to plug? Gimmicks or cameos or appearances? What what should we be plugging? Uh, or hustle Rip do, Rock? Let's see. I did, uh, you can buy some by hustler t-shirts at prowrestlingtees.com. Then I got that book for sale uh, on an Amazon. And then I'm on a whole lot of people call me to be on podcasts, usually about three a week, different ones. And then uh, I do one, and I did another one on Patreon. And then uh, the guy was helping me shoot it. Uh, he had he had to work that there, whatever. So I just dropped that. So I'm starting another one now with Vaughn Lilas, uh, one of my buddies from fucking Seymour. So we're just doing that. Uh, so anyway, that, that that's about it. So. I still do, uh, love the wrestling business, but I hate the wrestling business. <laughs> I've seen buddies blow their brains out and kill themselves because they thought they wasn't the star. I've seen some of the guys really work their balls off to get good. I see guys that think they're they're just totally fucking assholes. It became uh, what you would call they get in the wrestling business and all of a sudden they think they're over. And they're not worth a fuck. They ain't worth a fucking shit. So I just sit there and shake my goddamn head. And I said, uh, that's like, you know, Serena, right? Right, right. Uh, Serena Deep? Yes. Was that the one that you were yes. pitching me a couple of years ago? But she's been a star and very accomplished for, I think, well over 10 years. Or maybe yeah, years. she was... Uh, yeah, she was uh, an instructor at uh, NXT. Yeah, a developmental. Yeah, that was a shame they let her go because 
Man, now she's doing the Dean Malenko, Woman of a Thousand Holds thing. She is incredible. It's really, really great. Yeah, and it, what's so funny is I talk to her about on the phone about every other week about doing stuff, and I said, well, this is so fucking easy because all you got to do is what you were told to do when I trained you with guys and let everybody else do stupid shit, and they look stupid. So it all it does is the worse they are, the better it makes you look. So thank it, thank everybody for being rotten, stupid, thinking they're over, doing a whole bunch of shit. But she had a she had a match on AEW. I, I was last week, the week before, whatever. She did a submission. Of course, she didn't. Uh, there wasn't any false finishes. I said no. You, they don't kick out on you. Uh, uh-uh, fuck them. <laughs> like Dick the Bruiser. Uh, they don't kick out on the Bruiser. Whenever I cover you, it's the fucking pin. And that's the way it fucking was. So you let take all these old rules that nobody knows anymore and you can stick out and people get, you push people's buttons and people get involved with your match, but they don't know why. So, uh, but it's just the old, old time carny shit. You talk about them not speaking carny, they don't, and then they don't, they don't understand, they don't teach, uh, learn Cockney, either the Cockney slang, but the English fucking, uh, version of the fucking kayfabe Cockney slang. <laughs> there, yeah, there's, so there's, the different. there's, uh, they, there's one in Mexico, there's one in uh, Japan, and Cornette said that he could speak at least three different carny dialects, you know, and one of them had to be the, the British one you're talking about. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's a lost so, art. Everything about the biz, lost art, you know, thanks to Vince. I, I would blame him more than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, he didn't do the business any favors, put it that way. So, uh, he's not on my Christmas list, put it that way. <laughs> but, well, I still but, say, all my, uh, I, before Eddie Gilbert died, every year I got a Christmas card from him and even Benoit until about three years before, you know, all that horror shit started that I think was just from the juice and the painkillers and stuff. But I still have all my Eddie Gilbert. You know, he and when I started, because I, I ran the Sheik's fan club, this, the Sheik's International Fan Club in the 60s. And then I took over with John Arizzi. We took over from my L.A. LaBelle boss, the Blasty fan club uh-huh. in 72. And then I started the Tolis Brothers fan club, the really to do a bulletin. And starting in 1973, I'm doing a bulletin, not on them for the fan club, but on global wrestling. I was copying what Tom Burke was doing, covering South Africa, England, all the territories, Japan, Mexico, Canada. Meltzer, 10 years later, starts doing the same thing. I should have stuck with what I was doing there. But the first two guys to subscribe to my newsletter for the Tolis Brothers were Jim Cornette and Eddie Gilbert. And uh, <laughs> I take great pride in that. So Rip Rogers, we want to have him back. One of the genius, great minds, historians, keeper of the faith. And uh, we got to bring this gentleman back on. But he's one of the great people, one of the few people I respect 100% in the biz. The great Hustler Rip Rogers. I have to ask you next time where the Hustler nickname. Where Briefly, where did the Hustler nickname, where'd you get that from? I'll tell, I'll tell you the story right now. It'll take about a moment, one minute. Uh, in the Portland Sports Arena on Sundays, it was the old, or the Sports Arena, that it'd be Sandy Bar's Flea Market on Sunday. 
and he'd be selling shit. Me and Buddy would go down there. Whenever we went out, Buddy always bought. Wendy's, whatever we had to eat, he always bought. We go down there, and there was a bunch of Playboy magazines, and there was a Hustler magazine. We took a picture. He said, look, there's me, Playboy and the Playboy. He said, you are now the Hustler. That's how that became. Well, you know, Buddy Rose nickname. Well, Buddy nicknamed me the Hustler. Well, so we I had did to not know that. The Playboy <laughs> and the Hustler. Think out it wasn't a copy. Market. Wait a minute, Rip. Think out it wasn't a copy of Wee magazine. It'd been the the Playboy and Wee. Well, my short Wee Wee. So what the fuck, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about the old school, old school porn magazines. Well, it could he could be like us Jews, you know, that everything's half off. But that's a whole nother. Yeah, can you imagine Penthouse Rip Rogers? <laughs> 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 oh, we killed him from laughing. Way to go. Rip, thank you, you so guys, much, brother. I love Rip Rogers. He's a genius, everybody. Go support him. Do you have any social? Well, I don't know if you have social media. Do you have a Facebook page or something somebody set up for you? I got I got my uh Hustler 2754 on my fucking Twitter. And I, of course I got a Facebook thing, but I don't fucking hardly put anything in there or all put something on there. What I, anything I do on this phone is a fucking accident. So, but it was nice to talk to you guys today because you guys talk about, I don't really talk about, I forget all that shit because nobody else even knows what I was talking about to begin with. So no, you guys you go do, back. You know what, Rip? You got to do a book. I'm still finishing up my book long after Johnny Valentine died called Rib. And it's just on all the filthy ribs he did with feces. Now, Abdul the Butcher asked me last year to co-write his book. He's not participating, doing any of the stuff I asked him to. And then uh, I want to do one on the wrestling and radio. Wrestling, pro wrestling on radio goes back to 1971. I haven't found anything earlier than that, but that was New York City. Um, but you really should do a book. And all the boys would buy it. I'm, well, I mean, the you know guys that are still around. Uh, and the marks that love history or those that are uh, those of us like George Shire, Tom Burke, the historians, the few that we have left, Scott Teal from the Tennessee and Knoxville areas. And, um, yeah. I'm sure uh, I know. Uh, um, oh, fuck. What is his name now? The, uh, the, the trainer, um, the other trainer, the guy that was doing commentary for uh, OV dub with uh, uh, Danny Davis. No, no, no. The the other one, uh, Les Thatcher. Les Thatcher would buy your book in a heartbeat because Les always puts you over. So you got to do a book. Yeah. Uh, Les Thatcher. Boy, that's when senility. I can remember stuff from 1950, 1960. But, you know, I should be struck down for forgetting uh, uh, Les Thatcher's name for a second or two there. Another. Well, I, I, told you, I, I told you. I told you when I, when I was at the Cauliflower Alley, when I was there, my basement flooded and I lost everything I had. Uh, all, my pictures, all, all my pictures, all my videos, everything since I was born. Oh, because that's when it. I, I, I'm looking on Google and I see 
It says from Facebook, it's my photo of you. I posed the outside in the garden at the Arizzi convention in 91 weekend of champions with Buddy Rogers. So I'll, right. have to make, you, I'll make you prince of that. Did, is that where that came from? Probably your Facebook, you put it up? Uh, probably my Twitter or Facebook or both. Just make sure I, I get credit, say photo, you know, put my email address, but I'll reprint up and send you some stuff. And if anybody has stuff of rip, uh, I'll just give out my email or they can email here at the show and we'll divert it to rip because rip needs his collection back. He'll need his book. Whatever happened to gorgeous George from 1973. He'll need his book on Paul Bosch, Houston wrestling from 1972, that photo book that great photographer did. Uh, rip. So anybody that can spare stuff from their collection, we need to, you know, that was like when Harley race, the wife before BJ took all of his stuff, the same with Bill Watts, the first wife took all of his mid South tapes, ended up making all the money selling it to Vince, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. which sucked. But in this case, um, you're like the Mike Chapman, Iowa Thez Tragus museum had a flood and, and lost everything. So anybody that can spare stuff that they think rip, needs deserves in his collection let's get it to him and uh rip will have you on soon uh to talk more of the important stuff the real pro wrestling uh, according to rip rogers well it was my pleasure guys uh thanks for having me on there you guys have a good one chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Oh, yeah. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh my God. Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. You're naughty. This medicine is made for extreme cases of being even keel or having extreme depression. Oh, come on. Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, Swallowing, decrease in semen, increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my. What does everybody want? Hi, I'm former WWE superstar Al Snow, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. <laughs> 